So today we're starting a brand new series we're calling Amnesty. And over the next few weeks, you're going to hear more of the stories that you just saw glimpses of in that in that opening video. We're going to hear the stories of those men and women and how the Lord uh, used them to forgive others and how it gave them freedom. Now, when I say the word amnesty, how many of you are familiar with that word just in general? All right. So when I say amnesty, what's what do you think of what comes to mind immediately when you hear the word amnesty? Forgiveness. It's kind of on the title there, right? You're in church, so that's the answer you're going to give. If you were out of church and you heard amnesty, what would you think of? You're like, I don't know that we can talk about political stuff in here. All right. Right. Politics. uh, It's in the discussion of illegal immigration. Do we give amnesty? Do we grant amnesty to people? And here is a a definition of amnesty. All right. And we don't normally start with definitions, but I want to give you a definition because it's going to we're going to launch off of that into what we're doing with the rest of the series. Amnesty is a general pardon for offenses, especially political offenses against a government often granted before any trial or conviction. Or it's an act of forgiveness for past offenses, especially to a class of persons as a whole. So the idea in general in the secular world, in the in the world of government and politics, is that amnesty is when, for no reason necessarily, there's no good reason, there's no, uh, there's no innocence there necessarily, but you grant forgiveness for an offense, you grant pardon for an offense, Before a trial, before a conviction, before anything can happen, you grant amnesty to them so that nothing occurs. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the power of amnesty, the power of forgiveness in our own lives. And I know that you hear, well, political stuff, how does that translate into spiritual side? But the truth is, what Scripture teaches us is that God's kingdom is a kingdom that is advancing forward in the world, and that we are guilty of offenses against His kingdom, and that in Christ Jesus, we are offered forgiveness for those offenses before a trial or conviction ever occurred. And so we're going to talk about the power of forgiveness in our lives and then how we can forgive other people because of the forgiveness that's been given to us. Now, here's the reason we're doing this series. Here's the conviction behind it on my part, on the part of our staff, on the part of what we're doing here at First Baptist is because I am convinced that every single one of us in this room is constantly in need of forgiveness from each other, from the Lord And each one of us in this room have people that we need to forgive on a regular basis. Now, the real deep idea behind that is that you and I all mess up. How many of you in this room have ever messed up in your life? All right. If you didn't raise your hand, that's number one. All right. How many of you have ever failed at anything in life? All right. Now, I was reading this week uh, a book of failures, the greatest failures in history. And for instance, they tell the story of um, the worst inventor in history. He had 162 inventions and not one of them was developed. Arthur Pedrick is his name. He invented things like a car driven from the back seat. Now, I've known some people in my life that would have liked that car, all right? They wish they could take over in the middle, all right? Or a golf ball you could control while in the air. 
He also had this grand plan to irrigate the deserts of the world by sending a constant supply of snowballs from the polar region through massive networks of pea shooters. Somehow nobody thought that would work, all right? In the same book, they tell the story of the worst preacher in history. They call him Reverend Frederick Denison Maurice, and this is what two of his congregation members said about him. One is, back on the pea issue, listening to him was like eating pea soup with a fork. I'm not real sure what that means, but it apparently is unpleasant. Or one of his, one of his parishioners named Sir Grant said, I must have heard him speak 30 to 40 times, and never in those times did I carry away even one clear idea, or have the impression that he had the faintest idea of what he was talking about himself. All right? Now, I know that some of you, I'm just giving you ammunition for your emails to me this week. But the worst preacher may have been Robert South, who in 1689 put an entire congregation to sleep one day. Now, I've tried that before. It doesn't work always, all right? Including in the congregation was the King of England. So kind of an important guy. My favorite story in the whole book, all right? 1978, there was a fireman strike in London. The firemen went on strike, and so the military had to take over emergency firefighting duty. One day, uh, actually January 14th, 1978, a British lady, elderly lady, called the fire department because she had a cat stuck in a tree. So the British um, army gets together, answers quickly, gets to her house, gets the cat out of the tree, comes down, they are so elated, so excited, they accomplish this. The woman is beyond grateful. She invites them all in for tea. They have a wonderful afternoon, tea included. They say goodbye, give um, waves, get in the car, and back up and run over the cat on the way out. I said in the first service that any story that ends with a dead cat's a good story. And some people took offense to that for some reason. I don't know why. All right? So we've all failed. Maybe not that miserably, but we've all failed. Here's what we want to do today. We want to talk about the need that we have for forgiveness. And we're going to talk about one of the worst failures in history. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn to a passage of Scripture that we're going to talk about, John 21 is where we're going to be today. Now, here's the thing. You can bookmark John chapter 21 because we're actually going to be in parts of John 21 over the next several weeks. Today, we're going to follow the story leading up to John 21, read John 21, and then talk about a couple of things that are in there specifically that help us to see our need for and the availability of amnesty, of forgiveness in our own lives. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that John 21 is the last chapter of the book of John. And in fact, it's one of those chapters that people wonder why it's there. Because if you read John 20 and you get to the end of John chapter 20, it looks like a good conclusion to the book. I mean, in fact, John in John chapter 20 says things like uh, at the very end, like there are more and more stuff I could write to you about what Jesus has done. But I just put down enough stuff in here to convince you that he is the son of God, that you might believe in him, period. Like that seems like a good stopping point. He has told us who Jesus is. He's proven to us who Jesus is. Great place to stop. And then he adds John 21 on the top of it. Now, people have not questioned whether or not really this is consistent with the story of Jesus, consistent with it being there, that it shouldn't be in the Bible. They're just wondering why it's there. 
And over the next couple of weeks, next three or four weeks, we're going to talk about some specific moments that come out of John chapter 21. And the idea is that we are going to find the reasons that John felt it important to tell us this particular story. And in the center of the story is a man who made one of, if not the greatest mistakes in history. Guy's name was Peter. Peter was a guy that liked to ready, fire, aim. He liked to just shoot and then worry about what else was going to come. He was a guy that often stepped out in front of things and said things that were bold and aggressive. And sometimes that worked out for him. There was a time that he talked about that Jesus was the Son of God. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, that is great, Peter. That is exactly right. That has been revealed to you from on high. There was the moment when Jesus says that um, he is walking on the water. And Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come and I'll come out. And Jesus says, come on. And Peter walks on water while the other 11 disciples are just sitting in the boat. But there were times that it got him in trouble when he spoke and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And in this particular story, John 21, the story starts much earlier in John. And you don't have to turn there because it's going to be on the screen. You can if you want to. But in John 13, Peter sets up what's going to come in 21. Here's what's happening. John 13 is as the Last Supper is getting ready to happen. It's in the last few hours of the life Jesus would spend before the crucifixion. He's gathered his apostles, his disciples, his closest followers with him. They're going to eat together. They're going to have this celebration together. And in the midst of it, he starts to tell them, I'm going away. I'm leaving. Like I've trained you. I'm going to send a helper, but I'm leaving. The disciples have no clue what he's talking about. Where are you going? Just tell us. Just tell us where you're going. Jesus answers, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you'll come later. And Peter's like, well, why can't you just tell us now? In fact, the next verse he says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus, I'll do absolutely anything you want me to do, you need me to do. I will never leave you. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you really? Will you really lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Now, there's another exchange of this. There's another telling of this in the book of Mark, chapter 14. And in this this exchange, we see something even a little more bold. We see something even a little more audacious that Peter makes the claim of. And so in Mark, chapter 14, verse 27... He says, Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, again, they have no clue what's going on. Like, what is he talking about? I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Next verse. Peter told him, even if everyone else falls away, I will not. He says, Jesus, I know you think everybody's going. I'm not going. Basically, what he says here to Jesus is, Jesus, I love you more than all these other guys do. I'm your best. I'm your number one. I'm the closest. They may fall away. I get it. You don't think they're trustworthy, but you can trust in me. I will not move. I'm here to stay. He goes on to say this. 
Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, if you grew up in church, you know the story, right? You know what happens. A little bit later, actually in John chapter 18, just a little bit later. So they've gone through prayers. Jesus has gone to Gethsemane. He's been, he's been arrested. Um, his disciple Judas has betrayed him. He's come to him. He's kissed him on the cheek. They've taken him away. Peter, in the midst of that, tries to cut an uh, ear off. Jesus heals the ear. Peter, at first, looks like he's going to stand firm. He's going to be there. He's going to do what is asked of him. And then, all of a sudden, he gets cornered about being a follower of Jesus. John 18 tells the story this way. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. By the way, it doesn't identify this disciple, but we're pretty sure that it is John who wrote the book. And John, in that writing, you never kind of referred to yourself as yourself, okay? Third person or otherwise, you just talked about another disciple. You tried to be anonymous in your writing. And that disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter Remain standing outside by the door. Next verse. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was in the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So the idea is that they have this courtyard and then they have this inner sanctum and that Peter was outside the courtyard. John goes out and says, hey, I know him. He can come in. He's okay to come in. Let him in. He comes in to the kind of the courtyard where the inner sanctum is separated. Next verse. Then the servant girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, You aren't one of his man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. A little bit later it says this. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves and Peter was standing with them warming himself. So it's him with these officials. They're warming themselves. It's a cold night, right? Warming themselves over the coals. And they're all kind of gathered around. Next verse. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And then the last time, one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And Peter denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. Another version of this, of the events, tells us that when Peter had that rooster crow and he met the eyes of Jesus, he went out and wept bitterly. You ever been there? Maybe not in a courtyard denying Jesus before the high priest, but you ever betrayed someone or done something that you wished you could take back? You have any regrets in life, things that you wish you could go back and do differently? I read recently about an episode of uh, This American Life, which is a podcast and a radio show, and the host, Ira Glass, was talking about regrets. He said, some regrets just never go away. People tell us that they forgive us, and we try to forgive ourselves, and we still know we did wrong. We hurt somebody. It was real. And that feeling, it can immobilize you. If you're lucky, it teaches you something that you can take into other situations. But I think often it's just like this pebble in your shoe that teaches you nothing. It doesn't slow you down, really. It just hurts. It just hurts in this way that does not stop hurting. And then he references the Frank Sinatra song, My Way. You know that song? In the midst of that song, if you remember, he says, Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, not 
Too few to mention is what he says. But then again, too few to mention. And Glass says, oh, really? Too few to mention? Not me, buddy. Not most people. If you don't have regrets, it means you haven't screwed up. It means you haven't had your heart broken. It means you haven't been bloodied. It means you haven't failed. You haven't failed. Like, why even live? Why even live? Sometimes on newscasts, people talk about, I don't have any regrets. I feel the same way Hourglass does when I hear people say that. Like, I don't have any regrets. Like, then you haven't lived. I mean, have you ever said something that you wish you could take back? You ever made a declaration that you couldn't back up? You ever made a promise that you couldn't keep? You ever ruined a relationship that you cherished? You ever sinned in an area that you thought you had defeated? I want to tell you, there are moments in my life when the words come out of my mouth, and as they're coming out of my mouth, I almost feel like they're coming back into me like a boomerang, because as they're leaving, I'm like, ugh. Times when I'm talking with my kids and what has gone from a calm correction turns into an angry discussion. And the look on their faces tells me that I stepped over the line. You ever had one of those uh, discussions with your spouse where it just seems that you start one-upping each other on the accusations? And you jump like four steps ahead and you realize the moment you say it that you have pierced into their heart. Conversation with people at work. It's deadline time and things got to get done. And it's just not moving like you should. And you say something that takes months to overcome. You do something to try to cut a corner or to get around. Or you feel like somebody's not doing it, so you go in a different direction. And eventually you've done something that has caused a hurt. You've got some familiar sin that in your life it just seems won't go away. And you think you finally got it taken care of. And then something happens. You slip back in. An attitude or an action or a thought or a secret. Peter is there. I told him I'd never leave him. I told him I loved him more than everybody else did. I told him I wouldn't be the one to fall away. And yet, he does. You gotta remember, Peter hadn't read John 21. Peter hadn't read John 20. He doesn't know at that moment, even though Jesus had tried to tell them again and again and again that the resurrection is coming, how could he understand or comprehend that Jesus was coming back to life? He thought he's gonna be killed and it's over. Never get another opportunity. And even if he gets released, even if something happens, he'll never let me be in leadership again. My time with him is over. It'll never be the same. Maybe you've had one of those relationships in your life. Yeah, I can forgive you, but it'll never be the same. Peter's like, it's over. It's done. And yet, John 21 shows us an important lesson for every one of us and for Peter to learn That when it comes to forgiveness, Jesus loves us with an all-encompassing, never-ending, always-pursuing love. 
Now, there are actually two places we see this. The first, when it comes to the resurrection and to Peter, is in the book of Mark. And in Mark chapter 16, now, here's the thing you have to know about Mark. In the book of Mark, it is written by John Mark. It's written by the, by the, the follower of Jesus, Mark. But most people think his source material, that the guy that helped him write it, that the guy that gave him all the information, because Mark wasn't around during the times of the apostles, what you see is the story is told through Peter's perspective. And so when you're reading Mark, this fast action, jump, jump, jump gospel, it is most people's thought that it is Peter giving the instruction to Mark about what to write and what to include and what to do. And in the book of Mark, in Mark 16, verse 7, we have this interesting little note that happens when the resurrection happens. It says, but go, this is the angel talking to them, tell his disciples and Peter. Now, that's interesting because, let me ask you a quick question, is Peter a disciple? Yeah, so if we just took and Peter out of that, would Peter get told? Yeah. So the question again is, why is and Peter there? And the only explanation that I have for that is that the apostle was the one that Jesus was saying, go let him know it's going to be okay. I can imagine Max Lucado talks about the angels on the edge of heaven leaning over to watch this interaction as they are saying, go get him, bring him back, restore him, tell him he's loved. And Peter. We have that extended out in John 21. I'm going to read. This isn't all going to be on the screen. In fact, we're not going to put it on the screen for a few minutes. We're going to put some of the scriptures on the screen in a few minutes. But I want you to hear this. You've got your Bibles open to John 21, or you've got your apps ready there. We're going to read verses 1 all the way down to verse 19. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. Now, just to note, that means there's seven of them there, even though not all seven are identified. But most people think that this is an act of completion showing that he's appearing again to his disciples to give them instruction. Verse 3, Peter says, I'm going fishing. I love that verse. He's like, I'm I'm going fishing, guys. I'm out. All right. We're going to talk next week a little bit about the fact that this is the most derided, the most controversial fishing trip in history. All right. Now, there have been others, and we'll talk about that, but this was a controversial fishing trip. And he says, the other guys look at, hey, we're coming with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. And I'm sure that was not an exciting, no, we don't, it's been great. Like, No. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off. The actual translation there is, he put on his outer clothing because he was naked and plunged into the sea. Because it's not often you put clothes on to get into the water. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though they were so many, the net was not torn. 
Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told them. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. Now, here's what I want us to see in just the few minutes we have left. Just a couple of things here. I want us to see that what is happening in John 21 is like a puzzle coming together in the final moments and everything making sense. One of the things that I love is I love books. I love TV shows. I love movies that are mysterious, and that you don't know what's going on. And then at the end, in an intelligent way, it brings it all together for once, okay? I'm not one of those people that has to know what the ending is. I want to find it out as I go, right? Anybody here read the end of the book first? Some of you, thank you for admitting that. In the first service, nobody would admit it. I saw hands like, "Eh, I don't want to say it. But yeah, like you read the first two chapters, and then you look at the end, all right? Um, we're in the movie theater sometimes, and we're watching a movie, Susan and I together. You know, that happens like once every eight years now that we have so many kids. Um, and so, but we're in a movie theater, we're watching a suspenseful movie, and something's happening, you know. And I'll look over, and she's on her phone. And I'm like, what are you, are you texting somebody? She goes, no, I'm reading what's going to happen at the end of the movie. I'm like, you're doing what? Y'all don't tell her I told you that, all right? But... She'll be, you know, because they have summary plots, you know, and she'll, to make sure, I just got to make sure this is going to be all right. I'm like, it's a movie. And like the movies we go to now, like it's Disney. It's going to be okay in the end, all right? But I love that. That's why I love, uh, there's a filmmaker named Christopher Nolan that I love who did Interstellar, who did Inception, who's making a new movie about that. that it just, like, it just has, like, they leave these clues along the way. And then the end, it all wraps up. My favorite television show in, uh, recent years has been a show called Sherlock, all right? And it's a modern take on Sherlock Holmes mysteries, and it's that kind of show. Like, you weave and you go around. I remember one episode in particular that they were at a wedding toast, giving a toast, and the whole episode, this is in the second season, I'm like, what in the world is happening? Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, I don't, have, I don't even know what's supposed to be the plot line here. And in the last ten minutes, all of a sudden, it's like it all came together. And you're like, oh. That's good, right? John 21 is like the wrap-up of a Sherlock episode. You're like, I didn't get that at all, Pastor. All right? Let me show you, okay? There are a few clues in here that show us that Jesus is showing us the extent of his love and the lengths that he will go to to reinstate Peter and to show him how valuable he is. Look at it with him. We're going to put some of this on the screen. 
when they got out on the land, so they're out on the boat, they're fishing. They catch the fish. Peter jumps out, puts his clothes on, swims, jumps out. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire there. Now, here's what's interesting, okay? The word charcoal is used twice in the book of John. John chapter 18, when Peter is standing around a charcoal fire to deny Christ. And John 21, when he comes onto the shore and Jesus has a charcoal fire prepared. Now here's the thing. Charcoal fires were not that uncommon, but it's only mentioned twice. And it just so happens to be the place that Jesus is denied and the place where Peter's reinstated. Fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus told him. So Jesus already had some fish. He's already cooking some. He's got some bread on there. He asked him for some more fish. Next verse. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. So here's the scene that is ancient. Charcoal fire, reminiscent of the night when he is denied by Peter. Then they gather around. And can you imagine being a disciple who is sitting there around in a circle with Jesus. And Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them. Now what are they immediately going to think of? Last Supper. The Last Supper where what did Peter say? Jesus, if they all fall away, I'm with you. Like each of these moments, Peter is being reminded, charcoal fire, standing around, denying Christ, having the fish and the bread passed around, the bread broken and passed. Like this is a moment when I, didn't, I told Jesus I would never deny him. Next verse. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. He goes on to say this. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's been lots of discussion about what does he mean these? Is he talking about the fishing equipment? You love me more than your fishing equipment? I don't think that's it. Are you, do you love me? Jesus is asking, do you love me more than you lo- the disciples? I don't think that's it. I think the most compelling argument, I think what is being said here is, he looks at, at, at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these others love me? Now, why would Jesus ask him that question? Because it was Peter who had claimed that he would never deny him because he loved Jesus more than the other guys loved Jesus. Yet again, reminding him of that moment. There's something else I want you to notice. What does he call Peter? Simon, son of John. He doesn't use the name Peter. He's telling him, Peter... I realize where you've been. I realize what happened. I realize the depths to which you've fallen. Yes, Lord, he says, you know that I love you. Next verse. Feed my lambs, he told him. The second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Then he asked him again. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it tells us that Peter was grieved. That he asked him the third time. Now if you've grown up in church, you know this. You've seen this. But when you think about the whole setting, the charcoal fire gathered around like the Last Supper. Asking him the question, do you love me more than these others love me? He's reminding Peter of the barrier that might still be there to his following Jesus. 
do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. And he just wants them to tell him, this is what you're about to get yourself into. So it tells us that he reminds him that when you were younger, you'd tie your belt, walk wherever you wanted to go. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hand. Someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. This is an obvious allusion in their mind to crucifixion. You'll stretch out your arms. You will be tied down and carried where you do not want to go. And tradition tells us that Peter was crucified like Jesus. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. Now you're like, wait a minute. We didn't see that follow me anywhere in what we read earlier today. This is the first call that Jesus ever gave to the disciples. And what he's saying to Peter is this, all right? Don't miss this. Peter, you have messed up royally. You made statements that you didn't follow through on. You made promises that you broke. You broke relationships. You did things that were um, inexcusable in the moment. And they are not, we're not looking at them and saying they weren't serious. They were. And I want you to be reminded of that. The coals are going to remind you of that. The questions are going to remind you of that. The three times are going to remind you of that. The breaking of the bread is going to remind you of that. But I want you to understand that once you give in to the amnesty, to the forgiveness, to what I'm offering you today, then it is time to move on Pass those things and follow me for the rest of your life. The forgiveness that is offered to Peter is absolutely complete. And his purpose is restored. Now here's the question for you today. What is crippling you from following Jesus? Because I am not naive to think that there aren't people in this room that are struggling with guilt, with regret, with things that have happened in the past, either pre- or post-conversion, or maybe you haven't given your life to Jesus at all, and you are living under the stranglehold of what sin and guilt and regret is doing to you. And maybe it happened eight years ago, or six months ago, or this weekend, but there is something that you are holding on to that you can't let go of. And because of that, your walk with Jesus, your purpose with Jesus, your performance of living out your life for Jesus has been burdened. And Jesus wants to meet you where you are today and say, listen, I'm going to go back to the exact same spot that you're talking about. I'm not denying it's not an important big mistake or problem or sin. But I want you to know that because of what I've done in the cross and the resurrection, it can be forgiven and wiped away. Years ago, there were some thunderstorms that ripped through southern Kentucky. And a, uh, a farm owned by the Claypool family was especially hard hit. Claypool family had had this farm for four or five generations. There was an orchard on it that had a particular pear tree that they had always talked about, reminisced about, was a part of family lore for all those generations. No one remembered when that pear tree wasn't there. And when these storms ripped through southern Kentucky, the Claypool family farm saw that pear tree completely knocked down. Wind blew it over. A neighbor was coming over to help him kind of assess the farm, the patriarch of the family, who everybody called Doc. They're walking around. They see the pear tree. And the neighbor says to him, man, Doc, I am so sorry. I, 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 I'm sorry to see that pear tree blown down. And Doc said, man, I am too. That's been a big part of our family. It's a part of my past. And the neighbor just said to him, what are you going to do now? 
Doc paused, thought for a minute, and said, I'm going to pick the fruit and burn what's left. Move on. And there are times in our lives when we've allowed the stranglehold of things that have already been blown over to keep us from following Christ. And some of you in this room need to pick the fruit and burn the rest and move on. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Now there's some of you in this room that haven't yet accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your life and you are living with the sin and the guilt and the regret of that in your life. And the truth is, without the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your life, you will never be able to have a relationship with God. That we are separated from Him without it. And you are offered amnesty today power of forgiveness you are offered a deal where you don't have to pay for it it has been paid for and you can follow him today over the next few weeks we're going to talk about the forgiveness that comes to us and the need we have for christ to forgive others but before we ever start that the question i simply have for you is have you received god's forgiveness in your life in just a moment we're going to have a time of um response. I'm going to be standing down front. The band's going to come. They're going to play. I'm just going to ask you to respond. If the Lord leads in any way, maybe it's to join what we're doing here at First Baptist. Maybe it's to say that I've never accepted Christ as my Savior and I want to do that. We're going to have baptism service next Sunday. Perhaps you're somebody that's never been baptized. You say, well, I need to find out about that. Um, We can baptize you here without you joining the church or uh, anything like that, but we would love to talk to you about what it means to be baptized and to follow Christ in that way. Maybe it's just you need to come and say, Lord, I've been saved. I've been baptized. I'm part of a church. I'm actively involved. But there's this sin that I can't get rid of. And I need to turn it over to you. Or this regret about a relationship that I ruined that I need to turn over to you. Let's pray together.